morning, good morning everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where anything can happen, as I'm going to tell you shortly. Well, we're preparing to go back to the moon, and NASA has now selected officially the 13 potential landing sites for the Artemis 3 mission, which will not take place for like, what, two, three years, maybe? Maybe in 2025, the original target, as you know, way, way back when was 2028. And then after we sent uh, President Trump his uh, background, backgrounder and all the artifacts all over the solar system, the presidential briefing, which, of course, is going to, as things continue to happen with the ex-president, it's going to become historic. It's going to become a uh, keepsake. And you can get a copy of what was sent directly to the president, which I think kicked off a series of very interesting developments and I may have time to go into that this evening or I may have to wait until next week because as you know next weekend uh, the 28th Sunday night we're going to do three hours of me solo discussing the Artemis 1 mission and much more important what there is on the moon for them to find I mean, this mission, even though it's unmanned, carries a slew of state-of-the-art, digital, high-resolution, high-def uh, cameras, digital cameras. And NASA is planning, according to their press conferences and their uh, updates, they're planning to do a lot of live video, downlinking live to the internet, to uh, NASA TV, and some of those images, some of that video, particularly as the angle changes between the spacecraft, the moon, and the sun, given the orbit that they're going to be in, some of those images are unquestionably going to show the extraordinary panorama of ancient glass ruins on the moon. That is a flat 100% prediction. Now, the thing that will interrupt that is if NASA does not transmit this data live, which they've already said at certain times they will not be able to because of bandwidth issues. I mean, come on, we're literally a quarter million miles away from Earth. We've got the DSN stations, which have these huge, you know, 70 meter dishes, which is over 230 feet and they're claiming they don't have enough bandwidth to transmit live video with state-of-the-art 21st, 21st century technology from the moon. No, that is a built-in hold, as they used to say, in the count, so they can look at the footage because they obviously know what is there. And to a first order, they are trying to, I guess, prevent us from seeing it. And that will only work up to a certain point. So this is going to be a very fluid situation, uh, kind of as fluid as tonight. So let me kind of go through the news items, and I will tell you right now that we may be at the bottom of the hour. We may be going to calls because we cannot find our guest. 
Neville Thompson is supposed to be the guest tonight. He is the guy who does extraordinary gigapans, who takes NASA data and has made it accessible to literally millions of people around the world. And when we had to recycle the count from last Sunday, when I talked to him on Skype and uh, told him, asked him if we could delay till tonight, Saturday night, uh, he said yes. And he uh, had a mother in his family who had these horrible migraine headaches, which I get, and nothing touches it, uh, nothing I've tried. And believe me, I've tried a lot of things. So we agreed to delay the count until tonight. And I think we've exchanged one email kind of midweek. He sent me something to look at, which was very interesting. And tonight um, he's unavailable and we're not quite sure why. So it may be that at the bottom of the hour, um, we have to go to call. So let me give you the phone number, just in case we're gonna open the lines and just spend three hours or two and a half having a conversation, kind of about anything you want to. I mean, the world is blowing up in several different quarters. This is part of the times we live in. So we can talk about that. We can talk about specifics. We can talk about all the stuff that's out there for NASA to someday find, given that, of course, we know they already know. We can talk about the bizarre psychology among the Mars teams at JPL, both the Curiosity and the Perseverance team, because they're immersed in ruins, as far as the eye can see except nobody over there seems to see anything. And in any population, you know, it's kind of like a Gaussian curve. You know what a Gaussian curve is, or, or what they used to say more colloquially, a bell curve. Um, there's always going to be the stragglers to the far left and to the far right, or vice versa, at the ends of the curve. In other words, those people that do not follow the main bulk of the population and who are revolutionaries, who are outliers. Why does not one of them break cover, do what Snowden did, take a whole thumb drive pull of stunning artifacts on both the moon and Mars and simply put them out there, hold a press conference or call the New York Times or in other words, do something. And the mystery is, and Ron and I have discussed this extensively, Ron Gerbrun, uh, why does nobody break cover? Why does nobody break silence? And we've had long discussions with Andrew, Andrew Curry, who was one of our uh, team, uh, who has a degree in psychology and who has read on the air a number of the bios of these people. They are exactly the kind of people who were looking for exactly the kind of stuff that we have found, that we found decades ago. And yet none of them, not one, stands up and says, wait a minute, look at that. That can not be natural. And remember the model. It only takes, as the old Apaches out here used to say, it only takes one white crow to prove that all crows aren't black. Well, we've got coveys and coveys of crows. Do you, can you have a covey? No, you have a covey of, of witches, I think. Um, what is it, a flock of crows? Um, there's probably, uh, I know it's a gaggle of geese. Um, anyway, we've, we've got more white crows than you can count uh, on both hands. And nobody inside the agency 
says anything. Nobody. And there's no discussion. There's no, there's not even discussion in the dark, dark, dark recesses of, of, the, of the web. And this, of course, when it is acknowledged by the population as a whole. And it doesn't take a lot of people in the right place to create the viral firestorm that will occur when it is unmistakable that we are surrounded by ancient stuff built by somebody. My model is that it's us. It's not aliens. It's not guys from Alpha Centauri or Sirius or, uh, you know, the third star in the uh, belt of, of Orion. It's, it's us, our great, 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 great grandmothers with some stuff which is much, much older and incredibly, extraordinarily interesting and of scale and technological magnitude that fully, fully um, affirms Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which is, in case you guys forgot, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, whoever raised the structures that we're going to see, as Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, God willing, the creek don't rise, um, is obviously completely absent from any of the NASA people who look at these pictures day and night, night and day, who live with them, who are immersed in them, who are talking about them constantly, who have huge pictures in the corridors of JPL, because you've seen the uh, documentaries, where they put blow-ups of the most spectacular imagery in full blown-up print form. Which is very expensive. I mean, you know, uh, prints that are six feet long and three feet high or four feet high. I mean, they spare no expense to immerse themselves in this experience, not just looking at a screen. And yet nobody, nobody in JPL over the decades since the first evidence, real evidence that we are not alone, and there's stuff on Mars, nobody blows the whistle. There have been no Snowdens in NASA forever. And, you know, the, the few people that have made kind of mumbles about UFOs, no, that's not about data that you up to and including the President of the United States can check. And remember how we began the presidential briefing for uh, President Trump right at the top. We said, and at the bottom, at the end of the three-hour video, we said again, all you have to do, Mr. President, is pick up the phone and call your NASA administrator and tell him to get down here in half an hour and bring the damn photograph showing the ruins with you. And he never did that. Or did he do it and they're part of what was in the boxes at Mar-a-Lago? I mean, that's a whole huge discussion. So if you want to uh, join us and if we have to go to calls, it uh, would be very useful. We'll open the lines at the bottom of the first hour here if we can't find Neville. And so far, Keith is having no joy in finding uh, Mr. Thompson. So the number, if you want to call us, 917 889 8802. That's 917-889-8802. And yes, I am absolutely fascinated to learn two 
critical things about the FBI search uh, of Mar-a-Lago. One, what did Trump think he was doing, taking over two dozen boxes, a lot of which contain top secret and special access program files with him when he left the White House? And so far, we've had zero answer on that very simple question. What were you doing? And number two, what was in the boxes? Did, in fact, he take with him the critical information on what's in the solar system and who is out there interacting with us, like the breakaways or like, um, you know, real ETs or folks dropping by from Sirius? Because there is a very deep, I believe, in our history, serious connection, uh, which is one of the places in what I call the great solar system diaspora that our great ancestors had to flee after the huge celestial interplanetary war that broke out in this system, as I'm putting it now, roughly 66 million years ago. And so next Sunday night, a week from tomorrow night, for three hours, I'm gonna lay out specifically focusing on the moon with stunning imagery, both from NASA, from ESA, from the Japanese, from the Indians, and from Earth-based photography, video, motion pictures, and film. I'm going to show you how you too, with nothing compared to a 20 plus billion dollar national space program, you too can independently verify that there are indeed ancient, extraordinary ruins on the moon. They are so democratically accessible to anybody that wants to look. So part of next Sunday night will be devoted to um, how to look, what the sources are, how you access the data, what you look for, the physics background to why what you're seeing is real and not a chimera or a trick of uh, light and shadow. So my item number one, and for those of you who are new to the show, um, what you want to do is go to the section we call Radio with Pictures, which I freely stole from RKO. Remember, we almost had a movie deal at RKO. Maybe some of you don't know that. That's, that's something I might get into later tonight, given that I have three hours to fill and there's no Neville Thompson yet. Anyway, uh, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's banner for the 20th of August, 2022, the banner which says a citizen scientist on Mars, the Neville Thompson story, maybe he went to Mars. I'm kind of, you know, with tongue in cheek. Anyway, what you want to do is you want to click on that banner that will take you to Neville's guest page and right under the similar banner at the top of the guest page you will see fast links to items you want to click on my name richard and that will take you to the section down the page means you don't have to scroll um, where i have my items and number one is the artemis moon rocket it has now arrived back at the launch pad 39B ahead of the historic mission, which is planned for next Monday. Two days and a week from now, Monday morning 
at 8.33 um, a.m. Eastern Time, 7.33 uh, a.m. Central Time, which, of course, is uh, um, Houston Time, uh, and the mission will be controlled as all human uh, occupied spaceflight are, and this is a, you know, end-to-end New Haven test, a trial of the SLS, which stands for Space Launch System, Artemis One mission to the moon uh, for six weeks. The plan is if they get to leave at 7.33 Houston time, which, by the way, if you're looking at it symbolically, that's 19.5 because 7.33 is 19.33. And, of course, in this coding, you forget a.m. and p.m. Um, and again, there are a number of 19.5s built into this mission, which we will go through in some detail next Sunday night. I guarantee you, you're going to see things and hear things all put together in terms of what they, meaning NASA, has been hiding for over half a century uh, that you have never heard before next Sunday night. And I'm deep in the process of production. And our problem, of course, is that we have the, uh, what what my grandmother used to say is the poverty of riches. We have too much stuff. So I'm winnowing, winnowing, winnowing. What will what will stand out? What will be a signal in the noise? What will people easily see who have no background in looking at NASA imagery uh, or digital imagery, although we use cell phones and smartphones and take tons of pictures? How many ever stop to analyze? I mean, really deconstruct what's in your digital social media files. Not very many people. We just take it all for granted. We point and shoot and we click and we open and we close and we get rid of and we cancel and we, nobody does a deep dive into how does this stuff appear on a screen. Well, part of next Sunday night is gonna be a tutelage in how you need to look at this stuff to understand what it is you're seeing. Because I think a major problem on the part of not NASA, not the NASA personnel, but the general population is that most of us have never had training in how to look at any of this stuff. We don't know what is, quote, normal and what is abnormal. Because to us, who always seem to have our heads down or on our screens, um, we're not looking up. We're not looking at the bigger context. We're not looking at how do you look at these things. So um, if you click on that link, uh, item number one, that will take you to an update from the Artemis blog on the uh, uh, NASA headquarters website. And that image, which is your entry point to the same information, that's a photograph taken in the pre-dawn hours a couple, three days ago. I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday that they rolled the uh, Artemis stack, as it's called, which includes the two solid rockets, five segments, the core stage first and second stage, and of course the service module and the spacecraft, the command module, the crew module of the Orion spacecraft itself, all there stacked on the uh, crawler along with the what's called the launch service tower, which is that 
thing just to the right of the rocket, which has all the pipes. Those pipes literally carry hydrogen and oxygen in liquid form, and they're used to refuel and to top off the tanks um, just pre prior to launch before the valves are closed and the tanks are pressurized and you're in the terminal count. Anyway, all that where we are in terms of the rollout and the checkout that will begin, I think, I think the, the actual countdown began tonight, um, I think, or is it, is it next Saturday? They have a very long count for this one because this is the first time we're actually going to launch this sucker and it's going to depart uh, for the moon. Okay, that's item number one. Um, again, the way to utilize these resources, which are kind of like, uh, as we used to say in the network business, bank pieces, meaning things that you can turn to when you uh, are uh, having not, not much to do and you want to kind of background yourself in the subject uh, during a live show for a lot of people they prefer to listen as opposed to scroll and look and read because you really can't read and listen at the same time so we leave these things up there permanently after the the live broadcast and they become part of the archive of the of the show in club 19.5 and i probably at this time should say a word about Club 19.5. As you may have noticed, we do not have commercials on the show, although we've been approached by people over the years, and I, I really do not want to get into the iffy market of, you know, supplements and, you know, snake oil and the stuff that's readily looking for airtime. Um, Actually, at one point very early in the show, we were trying to get the, the My Pillow guy to come on and sponsor uh, the other side of Midnight. Um, and we actually had someone on our behalf talking with someone on their behalf. And I'm not quite sure why the conversation broke down. Uh, it may have been for financial reasons. It may have been for political reasons, because I did not learn until somewhat later um, Mike Lindell's views. And I, uh, you know, in hindsight, probably when I learned of them, I probably would have said to Mike, uh, thanks, but uh, no thanks. Anyway, um, so if you if you uh, look at the, the, the wide spectrum of the stuff we're trying to do um, next weekend, I'm going to be delving into not only the background of Artemis, but also a little more detail on what I think happened vis-a-vis -vis the president, President Trump, to the presidential briefing. Because when those boxes came to light at Mar-a-Lago, when I kind of looked at some of the things that he said in his inaugural address in 2017, on uh, January 20th of 2017, things that never came to pass, having to do with space, with energy, Remember, this is a guy who was a favorite. I'm talking about President Trump now. He was a favorite of his uh, uncle, uh, John Trump, at MIT, who was a brilliant genius physicist. And apparently he and Donald hung out. Uh, and, and the president has made many references uh, on the public record to his famous uncle, the physicist. In fact, uh, way back when he was running for uh, president, uh, the subject of nuclear weapons came up 
and he made the comment that, well, I know a lot about nuclear because, you know, I hung out with my uncle. And of course, his uncle was involved in fundamental nuclear research, high energy physics. He built uh, accelerators using high voltage to accelerate atomic particles and have them collide with other atomic particles, which is how physics has progressed in many directions since the 1940s. So is it possible that the reason that the president took all these boxes, including, according to the inventory that was released from the Justice Department, uh, many sets of uh, top secret compartmentalized programs, uh, which of course includes technology programs listed as special access, which are so secret and so deep, deep, deep black that even the Congress does not know uh, what they're funding. And that's another very long discussion and uh, uh, program at some point. Um, is it possible that in amongst all that material, there in fact are secret memos from the CIA and from the NSA and from the NSC, which is the National Security Council, which is supposed to be the advisory group to the president directly there in the White House. Actually, they're over in the uh, executive office building concerning ruins on the moon, potential current occupation of current bases on the moon and by whom. And did the president, when he left the White House, finally, very, very grudgingly, did he take some of that material with him? Is that part of what's in those boxes? And when someone realized, after a year and a half of discussion and tea and conversation and friendly visits and all of that, because remember, the FBI did not go and search Mar-a-Lago the day after someone discovered this stuff was missing. It's been a year and a half. Who else in the United States, if they had taken top secret material or any documents out of the, the official government files that is illegal under several statutes, who else would be in simple, polite conversation over a year and a half except a former president of the United States? But what if in some form during those long, long conversations, what if someone actually said, oh my God, look at what he's got? In other words, the story in the Washington Post in this particular vein might be a euphemism. Uh, remember the Boy Post wrote a, wrote a story according to sources that some of the documents pertain to nuclear weaponry and strategy and you know nuclear posture and we don't know whether it's ours or some other third world government or some other government not just third world. Um, what if in fact the post story of nuclear is merely a euphemism for the kind of stuff that no individual, including an ex-president, should ever have access to on a daily basis and able to kind of promote it around the world? And does it in fact relate to special access programs, which are um, uh, so top secret that even the handful of people who are read in on them are 
literally um, profiled and given lie detector tests, electro, uh, what do they call those things? Uh, Encelography, encelography. In other words, you know, truth detectors, lie detectors to tell if they're telling the truth about not speaking a word or, you know, taking physical, you know, material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. There is no joy yet on Neville Thompson. So what we'll do is we will continue with my rundown on tonight's uh, news because it kind of all relates to my hopefully um, soon-to-be conversation with Neville Thompson. And so far, we've had one person call in. If you want to join the conversation after I finish with the news, the summary of things that are going to be extremely relevant in the last few months of 2022, and I'll explain the strategy for why this year seems to be the triggering year for <clears throat> the D word, disclosure. Anyway, um, we'll get to all of that uh, when we return. But what I thought I would do tonight in honor of Neville is we're going to be playing some clips from the soundtrack to The Martian. And I had a chance while I was working on next weekend, I had this playing in the background and I was kind of noting, you know, the various cuts and things that appear to be really interesting in a audible form. So this is uh, Mars from The Martian. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I, if no one else, will shortly return.
And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, August 20th, 2022. And this is an anniversary. Actually, this is a very interesting anniversary, which I will get to when I reach uh, another couple of news items. So, again, still no joy on Neville Thompson. I see more people signing up. Remember the phone number if you want to talk to us tonight. And we're going to open it up to any... We haven't done this in a very long time, and frankly, it's my fault, because I'm kind of... What I'm trying to do is structure these shows so that we're not just kind of interviewing a random author here or, you know, someone else there, that there's kind of a method to our madness. There's a there's a methodology. There's a an actual plan in the run-up to what's going to be, I believe, an extraordinary end of the year for disclosure. And I'm not talking about UFOs and UAPs and things that go flitting around over aircraft carriers and uh, nuclear weapon sites and all that. I'm, uh, I'm talking about uh, the things that are in our control, which is the reaching out through our official space agency and finding the physical evidence which is checkable by anybody in any space program in any nation on the planet that in fact we have never been alone and there's an extraordinary history to the human species which is so dazzling and so extraordinary compared to all the stuff we think we know about the mere last 6,000 years that I guarantee you next Sunday night, if I do this right, if I lay out the evidence properly, it will knock your socks off. So let me now turn back to the news that we're doing basically here on the other side of midnight tonight as we're filling, waiting for Mr. Thompson to appear. Um, I want to direct your attention to my second item. Again, the way you get to this stuff is you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, which takes you to the guest page. And then you simply click on the fast links under that banner, which is a duplicate of the one on the home page, that will take you to my items directly. Item number two, in the same days that the Artemis One spacecraft stack, which is the most powerful rocket on the planet now, uh, not historically speaking, that was the Saturn V, uh, the Block One SLS meaning the first iteration by NASA of the space launch system, which is not a duplicate of the Saturn V, but kind of like the next best thing to come. I mean, the Block 1 really is not as powerful, even though the thrust is, is uh, greater momentarily. Uh, you don't judge rockets by their thrust. You judge them by their ability to carry payloads into orbit. The uh, SLS... Orion combination can put about 95,000 kilograms into low Earth orbit. The Saturn V could put 118,000 kilograms into low Earth orbit. And for those of you who say, why is he speaking French? You know, the, the uh, uh, 
centigrade um, metric system? Well, it's because that's the way it's listed on the NASA graphs. If you want to uh, convert that to pounds, you multiply by 2.2 because there's 2.2 kilograms per pound. So you can see that the SLS, even though NASA's touting it again and again and again as the most powerful, it's not. Saturn V still holds the champion role as it should. I mean, when I look back, the fact that the Saturn V was even created with 1940s and 50s technology shows the genius of Werner von Braun. Now, um, Barbara Honiger, who was a well-known name on this show, who used to be a policy advisor, one of the few women in the Reagan White House, in the executive branch of the U.S. government, working under a, a guy named Martin Anderson, who was the chief domestic policy advisor to then-President Reagan. Barbara Honiger turned me on this week to a very important book, which comes in three volumes. And she actually went out, very God bless her soul, and she bought me all three volumes because she knows that we are very strapped for cash here at the other side of midnight. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit because that's part of the coming campaign that we need to prepare to conduct in the face of, shall we say, NASA um, uh, obstinance to reveal finally, after half a century, the truth of what's on the moon. And to do that, you need money. Really, there are very many things that cannot be bought in life with, with funds, with money, but um, a political campaign, which is what, of course, this will turn into very quickly, you need cash, you need money, and we need money just to keep the show going. And I've noticed of late that our memberships have fallen off a bit, and I presume it's because of everyone being strapped, and so I will have some things to say later in the morning. Given that it looks like I'm going to have a lot of time here by myself and with folks who call in because we can't find Mr. Thompson yet. And um, be that as it may. Anyway, um, where was I? When I kind of do these things that you can get lost in the weeds. So if you are new to the show, click on tonight's banner on the other side of midnight. That will take you to the guest page. Click on the fast links on my name under the guest page. That takes you down to my items. Item number two, in the same time frame, and obviously this is not an accident, in the same time frame that NASA rolled the Artemis One stack back to the pad midweek, and it's now sitting there waiting in the pre-dawn uh, Florida skies for the launch a week from this coming Monday night. They also unveiled a couple days ago the potential landing sites for the Artemis 3 mission, which is the first mission that will have a human crew literally land again on the moon, which will be the first Americans, the first anybody, the first humans from Earth who will have set boot on the moon since Gene uh, Cernan left the moon surface back in December of 1972. And so if you look at item number two, 
NASA selects potential lunar landing sites for Artemis 3. You click on that and you will see um, this LRO, which stands for Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is an unmanned spacecraft, which NASA has been operating successfully in lunar orbit since 2009. Okay. Um, the LRO imagery covers the entire moon now at various resolutions. What the NASA people did was to put out a map of the South Pole because the intended target for the next lunar landing by human beings from planet Earth is going to be somewhere near the lunar South Pole. And of course, you can see if you look at that uh, photo mosaic, which has a grid, which has the uh, South Pole clearly marked, it has uh, 13 little bluish squares. Those are the 13 potential landing sites where the Artemis 3 mission, which remember is two missions after Artemis 1, which leaves a week supposedly from two days from tonight, Monday morning. Um, one of those three, one of those 13 uh, little bluish boxes will be where they finally select where Artemis 3 will touch down, carrying the first woman to the moon, which of course is kind of appropriate as you're going to see in great detail uh, next Sunday night because Artemis is a woman and Artemis is the sister of Apollo, which was the Greek god chosen as the imprimatur and the symbolism of the Apollo project going to and from the moon with the first humans from Earth in a very, 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 very long time. That, of course, is my editorial. If you talk to NASA, they'll say it's the first humans ever. No, it is not. And next Sunday night, I'm hoping to assemble enough data that will prove that. I mean, if, if anything... Uh, good has come out of the Trump years, the Trump administration, his election, the four years he served as president and was currently going on now. It is that the kind of naive uh, perspective I had going into uh, my life, my career, my professional interests, uh, this show, which is that give people enough evidence and they will change their minds, uh, has proven not to be the case. There are certain aspects of human existence, human endeavor, that no amount of evidence, and I mean none, is able to change people's minds. Once their mind on these subjects has been made up, um, data is, is irrelevant, data be damned. Um, and this to me was a very soulful and very sobering uh, awakening. I used to think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I kind of went into the physical sciences as opposed to, you know, something a little more, uh, you know, subjective like politics or, or um, you know, psychology or, or uh, even, you know, selling storm windows. Because, of course, if you're going to sell storm windows, you've got to know your customers, right? I chose the physical sciences because of something called the laws of physics. And an insight that I had kind of early this week, when I've been watching the extraordinary deference that the Department of Justice over the last year and a half has shown uh, Donald Trump, as opposed to uh, what happened with my own family uh, many, many decades ago, um, 
and I, I may now I think I'm going to kind of defer on that conversation because that would take us down a whole other canyon and uh, we have callers now stacking up if you want to join this conversation if you have something you want to talk to me about or questions or an opinion and you know we have plenty of room for diversity of opinion we have a lot of people here who have very diverse opinions who show up on the show regularly and I think you know some of them by name uh, Ron is one Robert Morningstar is another Kinsia is a third I mean they all have airtime because I am a real obsessive when it comes to the First Amendment what I never imagined is that under the First Amendment came this rubric, you know, put forth by Jefferson primarily, that there should be a separation in the creation of this experiment between religion, faith, and facts, which is physics, which is, you know, political truths, which is, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, if I've learned anything in the last uh, four or five years is that there are certain truths that to a lot of people are not self-evident or if they are they're of exactly the opposite sign to the truth that I am holding as self-evident and that really was an important part of my developing education because I now realize that compared to the political firestorms occurring here and all around the world as we reach this crescendo in the physics, which again is one of my truths. Two people looking at the same data can come to exactly opposite political conclusions. And we're looking at evidence of this all around us. And it's it to me, at some level, it's incredibly interesting academically. And at another level, it scares me to death because it's how obsessives are formed. People for whom no amount of information coming externally will ever sway them from their position. And I used to be of the opinion that if you provide people with enough facts, uh, ultimately they will change their mind if the facts are independently uh, arrived at and uh, presented from credible sources, meaning sources that have done their homework, that actually are not just spouting an opinion, but actually have substance and documentable information behind them. That naive perspective has gone out the window because I'm seeing people who I respect, who I care for, who I have known for decades, reach exactly the opposite conclusions uh, based on you know, the same sea of information uh, that I'm delving into, except they're not. Uh, I try to sample a wide variety of sources. I mean, I used to really get off on, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bill's uh, memos over on Fox. I thought he had some really interesting points and he presented it interestingly. And I've kind of dabbled from time to time if I should do that, you know, kind of editorializing. And I decided probably that would not be a good idea. But I look at a wide range of input, but I also look at the sourcing behind the input. And to me, um, the show that I'm trying to put together, which turns out to be a lot more difficult than I had thought, because one of the guests particularly that I want has had a series of, of issues uh, medically, which has kept him from participating in the show, which is, uh, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, 
um, I'm sorry, midnight, ending at 3 o'clock in the morning his time because he's on the East Coast. But I really want to do the first of a series of shows of how do we know what we know? Because uh, as uh, my grandmother used to say, and this is a very long kind of homily, uh, those who know not and know not that they know not, they're okay. And those that know and know that they know, they're okay. But those that know not and think that they know, God help us. And it all ultimately comes down to process. How do you make decisions in the incredible, you know, free-for-all known as the internet, the web, all the different webs up to and including the dark web? How do you separate signal, in other words, reality, from fake stuff? Even people who believe religiously their fake stuff, their stuff is fake. How do you separate, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Authentic fake stuff pervaded by people who don't know any better uh, from real fake stuff, people who are out to basically con you, uh, get money out of you, convince you of a political you know, line of thinking, which is total crap, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, how do we know what we know. And it turns out, of course, which is something that I did kind of know at an academic level, but really we've experienced over the last four or five years, it turns out to be so difficult to separate the signal reality from the noise. And there are all kinds of misapprehensions about, you know, the sciences and the so-called hard uh, physics, the, the testable presuppositions about this physical law or that physical law. There's even incredible ambiguity there to where I saw a post the other day, it's it's making the rounds. Um, one of our trusted sources sent it to me. Uh, it basically has a title, which is uh, everything we think we know is a fraud or something like that. And I obviously was curious, you know, how did this person arrive uh, at the conclusion that everything underscoring the everything that they think they know is a fraud. Well, I went and looked at the examples. And to give you one example uh, of someone who obviously knows nothing about science, knows nothing about chemistry, knows nothing about anything but the fact that politics is filled these days with opinion and perception with little tethering, if zero tethering, to some actual truth. What this individual listed in this uh, PDF is a whole series of things that used to be believed and no longer even being discussed. Like they were incredibly important problems and now they appear just to have gone away, become non-problems. And one in particular that this individual picked out was the idea of acid rain. Um, the concept in the 70s of acid rain, which was the same era where uh, I lived in New England, so acid rain coming from coal-fired power plants to the west of us, given that weather in the United States and actually around the world in the Northern Hemisphere moves generally from west to east, 
New England would become the dumping ground for all the crud that the rest of the country put into the atmosphere, including, you know, steel manufacture and coal-fired power plants and, you know, just people driving cars and all of the atmospheric pollutants that, you know, were accumulating from Los Angeles to New England wound up drifting over New England. And when it rained, uh, the rain, because primarily of the sulfur and sulfur dioxide in the smokestacks uh, from the Midwest, the industrial rust belt, particularly power plants, they would condense out in rain and fall as rain that had a very, I always get this wrong, high pH, I think, as opposed to low which is acidic. I think, I think low is acidic and, and, and base is high, so it would be low, uh, high acid content, low pH. So it was literally turning the trees brown. You could see the effect of acid, sulfuric acid, because that's basically what it was in a very dilute form. And we know a planet right next to us, it's a twin of Earth called Venus, which is slightly smaller, and its atmosphere has sulfur sulfuric acid rain as measured by both Soviet and American probes. So there's a whole planet where the climate has gone to hell in a handbasket. And of course, the environmentalists back in the 70s were were um, issuing the same warnings for here. Anyway, this particular writer listing a whole series of things that used to be at the top of the public mind and now nobody talks about um, picked out among all the lies that he believed forthrightly he had been told uh, was the concept of acid rain, that it used to be a big thing on everybody's radar and used to be doing terrible things. And now nobody talked about it because in his perception, it wasn't real to begin with. It was another, you know, lib talking point or of course, back in the 70s, these terms didn't exist. A woke talking point. What obviously this writer did not know because he didn't follow the story is that acid rain, to the extent that I lived it growing up in New England, no longer exists. Why? Because of the EPA. The Nixon-created Environmental Protection Agency, which literally, after congressional legislation signed by the president, uh, enacted regulations on power plants to where they had to install sulfur dioxide scrubbers technical devices that literally pull the sulfur out of the effluents emanating from the burning of coal, particularly soft coal, the, the kind that is so economically easy to get to, which has a lot of sulfur. And it was that sulfur being dumped into the air that created the acid rain problem in the first place. Well, by putting in electrostatic scrubbers, by developing a technology to remove uh, with physics the effluents, uh, you know, emanating from those smokestacks in large measure. The problem of acid rain has not gone away because it was just a fanciful creation of the libs. It's gone away because the American society, uh, both in terms of public appreciation and enactment of key legislation in the Congress and the signing of that legislation by the president, in this case, a Republican, Richard Nixon, it literally created a technology to clean the air, leaving those smokestacks, all those incredibly dark power plants and effluvians, you know, belching God knows what into the atmosphere. In other words, 
popular legislation enacted duly uh, by the elected representatives of the people, the Congress, created a technological fix to the problem of acid rain. And the reason we don't have it anymore and we don't talk about it is because it was legislated technologically out of existence by and large by an environmental awareness developing under a Republican administration in the 1970s headed by Richard Milhouse Nixon. And this writer appeared to be completely oblivious that no, he wasn't lied to. People had taken control of their lives. They applied the best science of the times. They created a technological solution. They implemented in law that solution on individual privately owned power plants via regulation. And the result was the air has gotten a lot better. The same can be said of what used to go on in Los Angeles, where I developed my hydrocarbon sensitivity, which may be part of the reason that I get these bizarre headaches. Uh, I was exposed in the formative years to LA smog, and it did not do me any good. Now, of course, smog in Los Angeles is very, very, very rare. And with the enactment of this new legislation, which is putting almost $370 billion into all kinds of technologies that will really blunt the climate problem, uh, the air will get a lot cleaner. There are all kinds of other side effects up to including the amount of carbon we put into the air is going to go down to where the models say that by 2030, we should be about 40% of the way to a carbon neutral atmosphere. And I'm thinking that those curves are probably a little conservative because the amount of money being put into the development of new technologies and the creation of new industries and the liberation of new genius in creating paying jobs around a problem that then becomes a job creating solution that curve is going to not be linear, it's going to be an asymptotic curve rising steeply in the out years, meaning as we go from 2022 to 2030. And so I'm thinking that we're going to be even closer to the targets reached under the Paris Agreement of all 195 nations signing the Climate Accords. Did you note the number? 195 nations? That's not an accident. So we live in a multi-tiered, multi-symbolic, multi-layered society, a civilization where now we have taken a major step, the biggest ever, not as big as it should have been, but it's, it's a bite of the apple. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is that in terms of politics, once you get the uh, foot in the door or the um, uh, nose of the camel under the tent, things progress more rapidly in the direction of the goals you wish to achieve. Well, here we are. Another half hour is gone on the Saturday night version here in August, in late August of The Other Side of Midnight. There's no Neville Thompson. But once I get through the rest of these items and I don't get too more digressed, people are joining the phone lines and we will open the lines and we will have what is called a full and four square conversation. And I have no idea what people will want to talk about or bring up, but I guarantee you it will probably not be trivial. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.